and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and this episode is all about October 1992. I'm going to kick things off with the song of mystery for the week. This song reached a peak position of number 29 in October 1992. Let's hear a clip and see if you can name it. We'll be sharing what that was at the end of the show, so stick around. But right now, I'd like to introduce my guest, Tim Quirk. Welcome to the show. Hello. Happy to be here. Tim, you are a, you're a musician. You're a writer, a song critic, and a, uh, I don't know, a dot-com billionaire. Did I get that right? Yeah, close <laughs> enough. I would, I, I would say, to be more accurate, I would say I'm a guy in a band. Yeah, I'm a writer in a band. A musician is probably pushing it. Okay, okay. But your band is called Too Much Joy, and we're going to be hearing a little from that band later on this episode. You know, before we get into the music, I did want to say I I read some of your writings that I found online, and I wanted to mention a couple of them because I found them really interesting. The first one, you wrote a tribute to Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. I just thought that was fantastic. It's one of the best pieces of music journalism that I've ever read, I think. Thank you. It's hilarious and very heartfelt at the same time. That album was, you know, I mean, I listened to it probably more than anything else when I was like 12 years old. And so then as an adult, I tried to figure out, I was sort of not exactly ashamed, but I was befuddled by why it had been so powerful when it's so patently ridiculous. So I felt obliged to try to figure out how it did what it did on the prepubescent mind of young Americans. Yeah, and and you did a great job. The other article that I was really interested in is you wrote something about a time in your band's career where you were asked to record a jingle for, I think it was Budweiser. Yep. The article or the essay was really about you kind of struggling with the notion of selling out and how your band wanted to do it and and you were the one person who didn't want to. What really struck me, though, is that when your band eventually got around to recording this jingle and the band made a fair amount of money off of it, you wrote that the money from that jingle allowed you to buy health insurance, which then allowed you to have a child. That's, yeah, the title of the piece was Budweiser Bought My Baby. (laughs) And it's a true thing that actually happened, but it's also an apt metaphor for the fact that because my band was a democracy, they voted, they outvoted me and voted to sell out. And we did this thing that I was so angst ridden about and really didn't want to participate in. Uh, But it, If we hadn't done it, if we hadn't sold out in that way, my daughter literally would not exist today, which really makes you grapple with your punk rock ideals uh, and try to figure out just how valid they they might or might not be. And also, and the other thing that I figured out from the whole ordeal was that as much as I hated it, the deal that that Anheuser-Busch made with us was way better than the deal that we made with Warner Brothers. We definitely got the better end of the transaction from from Budweiser than we did from Warner. Right. That's the the other thing I was going to mention is that 
you know, I, I don't exactly know what the, the break-even point seems to be, but there's plenty of bands who have sold many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of albums, and, and the band is making no money off of their record deal. So it's really interesting that you had to write a jingle for a commercial, essentially, to actually get paid. Yeah. All right, well, let's look at the charts. We've got Morrissey back on the charts with Glamorous Glue. The legendary punk band Television is uh, staging some kind of comeback, and uh, they've released a single called Call Mr. Lee. And uh, the Rembrandts of Friends theme song fame have managed to crack the charts for the first time. But uh, we're not going to listen to them today. We're going to be checking out some other bands. And the first one I'd like to talk about is Suzanne Vega. Suzanne Vega is an American alternative folk artist. She is known as the mother of the MP3. And I didn't know this. I thought that Solitude Standing was her first album, but that was apparently her second. And her debut didn't have much impact in the U.S. But uh, in the U.K., her 1985 debut album was a big hit and went platinum over there and spawned a bunch of hit singles. That's the one with Marlena on the wall, right? I'm pretty sure. I, f- I first heard it in college, and that's that's a, a friend had a had the record, and I just got hooked on Marlena on the wall. Then I recall buying her follow-up Solitude Standing and being a, a tad disappointed. Okay, yeah, I'll have to go back and check out the, uh, the debut. By the time we get to 1992, Vega is releasing her fourth album, which this is kind of weird. I don't know if I'm reading this wrong. But I assumed it was called 99.9 degrees Fahrenheit, but um, apparently it's 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees. That sounds <laughs> wrong to me, uh, <laughs> but that's how it's written, and that's how I, you know it's described when I search it up online too. So I don't know what that's about. But this album is uh, just a touch more electronic and experimental than some of her earlier work, and we're going to be hearing the second single from the album. This is called Blood Makes Noise. And it reached number one for one week in October I love yep. it. I, you know, like I said earlier, I first encountered Suzanne Vega from her debut on from the song Marlena on the Wall, which I loved. I think I'd seen her uh, maybe after the second album came out. She was playing some Broadway theater. It was, you know, it wasn't a rock venue. And she was, at the time anyway, I think she was fairly new in her career, or maybe at that level of an audience. And she was kind of awkward and uncomfortable on stage. And, you know, I mean, I come from a punk rock background as much as i love bob dylan and john prine and loudon wainwright and other folk rockers i prefer you know some loud drums and some distorted guitars uh, for the stuff i really really like and so as much as i loved her song craft the folky thing you know left me wanting a bit more and this has a bit more this doesn't feel like somebody striving to be experimental for experiment's sake it sounds like oh that's what the song needed and i just i, I love almost everything about it I, yeah, I agree. This um, it sounds like she's moved out of the the coffee house phase, and uh, is like a, a real alternative 
quotation mark <laughs> artist here. Yeah, it sounds like it's ready for the radio and it's catchy and it's interesting. I don't know this for a fact, but it, you know, it, you sort of are left with the impression that the hit that somebody else had with their, you know, sort of electronic infused remix of Tom's Diner kind of opened her eyes or ears and made her go, oh, if my songs sound good like that, maybe I should try it. I don't know if, like, if it was a deliberate effort to, to surf that wave, but, you know, what the hell? Usually when people who are known for one genre of music try something like this, it's usually pretty embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when Bob Mould tried to make an electronic record and, and Stephen Malkmus made a you know electronic record, and I, I pretty much hate them both. I admire them for trying. I don't mean I hate the the musicians. I mean, I hate the results that they came up with. Yeah. This one, like I said, it just sounds like she and the producer figured out what the song needed and gave it that. Yep. And um, the percussion, I read someone described it as industrial-inspired percussion. And there was a a quote, probably from Wikipedia. I didn't dig (laughs) too deep. But someone asked Vega if she had intentionally been inspired by industrial music. And she commented that she didn't even know what that was. (laughs) I I totally believe that. In fact, when you said that phrase, I was going to interject and say to me, it sounds like lyric inspired music. You know, it's about the blood rushing through your head being so loud, whether literally or as a metaphor, that, you know, you can't focus on anything else or perceive anything else. And so all the noises that are going on in the tune just sound like, you know, they are making that viscerally real. Yeah. I read some interview with her about this record when she mentioned, I believe the producer was Mitchell Froome, and he'd just done some good stuff with Crowded House. And she thought, you know, she was going to get this pop sheen from him. And I believe this was the first song they tracked. And, you know, it went in a totally different direction than she was expecting. But, you know, both she and he were thrilled with the results as well. They should have been. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on from Suzanne Vega. We have another artist that hit number one this month. That's R.E.M. And they're back with a new album. R.E.M. were like an unstoppable rock juggernaut at this point. Uh, You know, they they had slowly built up a a bigger and bigger and bigger fan base through relentless touring over uh, the better part of the previous decade, releasing really one great album after the next. And um, finally, with their previous album, Out of Time, they had a humongo hit with Losing My Religion. We heard that on a previous episode. Following that album, the band decided that they wanted to do something a little heavier and a little harder rocking. But somehow when they got together to start writing songs, that didn't happen at all. Which, uh, I don't know, is even more surprising when you know that Led Zeppelin's John Paul Jones joined them uh, for, I guess he arranged strings. So he could have added some thundering bass or something, but (laughs) we ended up with a really reflective, string-laden slower sort of album. I don't know. The album's called Automatic for the People. It was released in October 1992. It was R.E.M.'s ninth studio album. And um, it was another big hit for the band, producing six singles. And it's regarded by many people as their finest album. Although, like pretty much anyone I I talk to who's a fan from back in the early days, they (laughs) tend to disagree. I don't know how Hello. you feel. <laughs> I'm, I'm in that camp. Are you a murmur guy? I'm a life's rich pageant is the pinnacle of their art. Interesting. So after the clash, REM was probably the most important band to my band. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of had a holy trinity when we were starting out in the early 80s. It was the clash. We literally formed the band to play clash covers at high school dances in the suburbs of New York City. 
And then we love Gang of Four just because mm-hmm. they were inspired by punk, but doing something completely different. And it literally like nothing I'd ever heard before in my life. And then we went to see Gang of Four. We were juniors in high school. We were dating some some seniors and they were new wave chicks, so they didn't go to prom. So we and our new wave senior girlfriends went to see Gang of Four at this little club in Mount Vernon, New York called The Left Bank. And this unknown indie band that had no records out, they had one single on Hip Tone. We went down to Bleaker's Bob's the very next day to buy for $5 because they were so impressive. But R.E.M. took the stage and just utterly, completely blew our minds. We could not believe how good they were. Inspired by punk, but something different, really mysterious, but very driving. You know, I just love them from the first notes I saw them play and bought everything they ever did afterwards, saw them every chance we could possibly get. And, you know, I was happy when they got signed to Warner Brothers. I thought it meant great things. To me, like Automatic for the People is probably the last great REM record, but it's not their greatest by any means. So I, I'll have a lot more to say about it after we actually listen to the tune. But they were so super meaningful in my life. But this was just a shadow of their former glory to my personal ears. But I, you know, I no judgment and total respect for people who disagree with me. Sure. For me, you know, I was uh, 12 when this album came out. I didn't hear it for a couple years, but it was one of my first 10 CDs that I ever owned. I purchased this through the BMG Music Club. I'd been hearing the buzz about R.E.M., and I had heard through a friend all of the singles from Green, so Stand and Orange Crush and Pop Song 89. And I loved those songs. I thought they were amazing. And so I took a chance on this album, and I was very surprised when I heard it. It was not the exciting pop music from Green. It sounded like music for adults. <laughs> and, you know, I still really liked it, but it, it took a while to grow on me, you know. But um, I do love it. I think it's a great album. We're going to take a listen to the first single from the album. This is called Drive, and it is the ninth REM song to chart on the modern rock charts, and their fourth to hit number one. Maybe you did, maybe you walked, maybe you knocked around the clock. You know, I've heard this song tons of times, but reading about it for research, one article mentioned that it was influenced by David Essex's Rock On, and that had never occurred to me before, but the second I read that, I was like, oh, yes, obviously, (laughs) of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's there. I mean, it's there. I think at the time, Michael Stipe was acknowledging that, you know, he was inspired by that tune. Yeah. I listen to this, you know, and my reaction hearing it now is the same as the first time I heard it on the radio, which is meh. (laughs) Again, love the band. Don't love this particular tune. It sounds to me like they were thinking, well, losing my religion worked. Maybe this will work, too. I will say there's something semi-compelling in it and that, you know, if it comes on, I don't fast forward. I don't 
turn it off. Mm -hmm. But I don't get, you know, I'm not super excited. I don't really lean forward and go, oh, I love this one. I can't wait to hear it again. I just keep listening to it going, maybe this time it will reveal its mysteries to me. (laughs) To me, it's just kind of there. It's, you know, it's a bit plodding. Michael Stipe's lyrics are best when you can't understand them. And I don't mean that as a diss. I mean, they're, they're, they like evoke a mystery in this, this sense of epiphanies that are just out of reach. And the more you can actually hear him, the more he enunciates, the less special they feel to me. And in this particular case, like, I mean, there's some vague, like allusions to Bush or something in there, but you know, they're not really making any grand point. The lyric is unconvincing. The music is interesting, but not super grabby to me. There are better songs on this album by the band that I like a lot more, and there's definitely better songs on other albums that I like a lot more by them. Sure. That said, if I had to choose between this and almost everything else that was on the radio that week or month, I'd choose this. Well, and that's the thing. Like, If I compare this to other R.E.M. songs, it's a little disappointing, especially as as a lead single from a new album. But like, if this was some no-name band I never heard of before... I would probably think it was really great, and I'd go look up the band and try to find out more about them. Fair. It's only not great because they've put out so much great music. Yep. They will be back. They're going to chart plenty of more times with this album and uh, on into the future. I actually think they chart 26 times altogether on the modern rock charts. That's impressive. So I guess, yeah, if there's any listeners who are new to REM, dig through some back episodes and you can hear some more songs by them. They're definitely worth checking out and definitely worth listening to. We're going to move on a little lower down the charts. We're going to look at a band called Sugar. This is a bonus song. We're going to be listening to five songs this time because, Tim, you requested that we throw some Sugar into the mix. This is Sugar's first chart appearance. Sugar is Bob Mould's band. He's one-third of the seminal alternative punk rock band Husker Du. After the band split up in 1988, Bob Mould, he put out a couple solo albums, and then he formed this band called Sugar. Tim, are you are you a Husker Du fan? Massive fan, massive fan. Massive fan. Yeah, they were, they were, they were also a big influence on, on Too Much Joy uh, and just our lives as well. The, you know, I had, because of when, I, when and where I grew up, I had the distinct privilege. Uh, I went to college in California, and Husker Du at the time were on SST. And so I regularly got to see SST bills where, you know, Husker Du and the Minutemen would co-headline. Nice. Um, and sometimes it'd be like Husker Du and the Minutemen and the Meat Puppets. And they were just mind-blowing, fantastic, amazing gigs. Uh, had all their records. It took me a while to get Landspeed record. Eventually I got Landspeed record, but I had all the other ones. And I just loved them. And Bob Mould, the front guy in, in Husker Du, had made two solo records before he formed another trio and called it Sugar. Yep. And I liked his solo records, but, you know, they were a bit... Yeah, it's like, you know, he was adulting. Yes, yeah. Which is what you said about Automatic for the People. And I wanted the rock back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his second solo album, Black Sheets of Rain, was pretty raucous, but it was, I don't know, it just felt strained in a way. This was just power pop, buzzy guitar perfection. Uh, the whole record and this song in particular. And one of the reasons I asked to throw in the bonus song was so, you know, there were a couple of songs that I could say nice things about since I didn't really like the REM one. And the one I think we're going to do next, I'm not a super fan of, but oh my God, I love the song so much. Yeah, well, great. So Copper Blue, the first Sugar album was released in 1992. It was met with critical accolades, including being named Enemies Album of the Year. We're going to be hearing Helpless which was the only charting single in the U.S., although three other singles charted in the U.K. So here it is, Helpless. Helpless. 
It's a powerful pop song, which is different than a power pop song. And you know, there's one thing that I love in particular about this, and it's a lyric thing. I mean, it's not that it's a vocal thing, rather. Uh, in the chorus, he goes, you make me feel so helpless, I. And there's no reason for him to throw in that extra I, because then the next line is, I never tried to change your mind. And he does it every chorus. And that extra I, I just love it because it's the type of thing, you know, a lot of times when you're in a band and you're writing a song, you know, a lot of times you're just making nonsense words up to a melody and you're going to fill in the words later. And this just sounds to me, I don't know this for a fact, but it certainly strikes me as the type of thing where he had an extra syllable that he didn't have a word for. And so he just went to the the, the first word of the next line and threw it in where it didn't belong. But it's such a hook. I love it. And it winds up rhyming with the rest of the chorus, which is always good uh, and helpful. I don't know. It makes no sense, but it makes perfect sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah. The, the other thing that I really like about Sugar is Bob Mould has always done best in power trios. Husker Du was a power trio. Sugar was a power trio. My understanding is he put the band together, David Barbie, whose bass line does wonders in this song, by the way. And he got a drummer and the bass player. And they were just supposed to be his backing band for you know what was going to be his third solo record. But you know they realized, I, my understanding is in the studio, they had something super special. So they turned it into a band. And then more recently, I'd say the last, I'm not sure how many, but the last number of solo records Bold's done this century have all been with the same players in the power trio. Interesting. Sugar lasted a couple albums, and then I guess he went back to doing albums under his own name, but he's still at it. And um, I think his most recent album was released in 2020. All right, well, let's move on. We're going to hear from the Ramones, moving down a little bit to number six on the charts. Rolling Stone magazine named them the 26th greatest artist of all time at some point. I think they're also generally considered to be the the first real punk band, having formed in 1974 and releasing their first album in April 1976. Although, you know, there's always people who are ready to dispute that title, I guess. Yep. They're known for their look. You know, they adopted a similar fashion style, black leather jackets and jeans, and they all changed their last names to Ramon. They really had just been plugging along for years and years and years, just touring and touring and touring nonstop, really without any sizable hits to their name. So by the time we get to 1992, they are releasing a minor comeback album, I guess. It's called Mondo Bizarro. And uh, we're going to hear the first single from the album. It's called Poison Heart. This one was written by Dee Dee Ramone, who had actually left the band a few years earlier at least in part because he wanted to pursue a career as a rapper. D.D. King, D.D. King. <laughs> D.D. King, that's right. I have not heard his album, but it's... Oh, you can find the clips on YouTube. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something else. That's what I've heard, yeah. But even once he quit the band, D.D. Uh, continued to write songs for the Ramones, and Poison Heart in particular was supposedly given to the band in exchange for them bailing him out of jail. Here it is. Poison Heart.
I like Poison Heart. I think it's pretty good. You are not a fan of it. Oh, I, I, I despise it. It's easily, to my mind, the worst single the Ramones ever released. <laughs> it comes right after Pet Cemetery. There are two crimes that this song commits to my mind. The first is, if you're the Ramones, you have a couple of secret weapons, but your number one best secret weapon is the way Johnny Ramone plays the guitar. And this just lacks that guitar attack. It's just a generic, slightly heavy song. So that's crime number one. And then crime number two is poison fucking heart. Come on. Like, what is this hair metal? This is like, what a shitty metaphor. This is a guy who wrote songs about sucking people off on 53rd and 3rd. Like he wrote songs called Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World. He's like a fucking genius. And he's, you know, he was spiraling towards his eventual demise, I guess. But I just listen to this and it just makes me sad for all the lost potential. You know, don't do heroin, kids. Yeah, good call. Oh, my God. When I was, you know, in grade school, I didn't have records. I listened to my parents' records. And my parents had lots of ABBA records and lots of Neil Diamond records. But whenever I put on my parents' records when I was a kid on the turntable, even the 33 and the third LPs, I would play them at 45. I didn't know it, but I was looking for punk rock. I wanted things to be faster than anybody was making them. And when I first heard the Ramones, it was like, oh, that's like ABBA on 45. That's what I want. <laughs> so I love the band. They were hugely important to me. And I hear a song like this, like anybody could have written this song. Like this song did okay. So people liked it. And I was wondering, how do I hear it with their ears? What do you hear in it that grabs you? First of all, I didn't hear the Ramones chronologically starting with their first album. I heard pretty much all of their music all at the same time. The first album of theirs I got was a greatest hits. And so there's no disappointment of, oh, this doesn't sound like the Ramones I used to know. The other thing, though, is the problems that you have with a song are not problems for me. This song sounds like Dee Dee Ramone is hurt and he's tired. I don't think this song would be appropriate with the super fast, furious guitar of a typical Ramone song. This song is not a typical cartoony Ramones track, but there's something genuine about it. And I, I like that about the song. I, I really love that Dee Dee is pushing himself to be vulnerable here. And even if he's not an incredible poet necessarily uh, with the lyrics, I like that it seems heartfelt. And I like that he's expressing this place where he is in his life at the time. At least that's how I take it. That makes sense. You know, here's my Ramones anecdote. <laughs> Pet Cemetery came out at the same time as my band's second record. And there was a local station in New York, and they had this thing called the Shriek of the Week, where every week listeners would vote on their favorite new song of the week, and that song would get put in heavy rotation and would be played like once an hour and stuff. And so this one week, my band's song from our second album called My Past Lives was up against Pet Cemetery, And my band was on tour and we were touring through New York City at the time. I remember it was, it was during sound check. Instead of sound checking, we all just found a bank of phones and called up and voted for ourselves over and over and over again. And we won. I felt a little bad that, you know, we voted ourselves over the Ramones, but I didn't feel that bad because the Ramones are a better band than Too Much Joy, but My Past Lives is a better song than Pet Cemetery. I feel quite confident saying that. So I felt okay <laughs> that we won for that. But I, we learned a couple of weeks later, we were talking to one of our radio reps, and she had been in an apartment with the Ramones while the voting was going on. And she's like, oh, yeah, they were all calling up and voting for themselves, too. And they were <laughs> super pissed off when they lost. They were like, who the hell is too much joy? How'd they beat us? Well, we beat you because we called in more than you called in for yourselves, guys. Yeah, faster right. dialing fingers. Yes. Yeah, that's good. 
I would just say I do like Pet Cemetery also. <laughs> but I also have a special place in my heart for songs that work as like Halloween songs. There's so many bazillions of Christmas songs out there, but there's really only a good handful or two of uh, songs that work as Halloween songs, and that one does. All right. A couple side notes here about Poison Heart and the Ramones. The first one is, I was reading the credits on the song, and backup vocals are credited to Flo and Eddie, apparently a comedy rock duo, but Flo and Eddie were formerly of the Turtles and Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. You know, they also did record production. They were among the people that we interviewed to produce one of our records. Really? Yeah. The other side note is, there's one other song on this album I wanted to bring up, and it's called Censor Shit. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a song directed at Tipper Gore. They were really pissed off about this censorship issue that was going on. That's something that your band was also pretty interested in. We did a set of two live crew covers at the same club they got arrested in for performing songs from as nasty as they want to be. So sort of punked up uh, some of their songs, played those, mixed them in with some Clash covers, some, you know, our cover of That's a Lie and a bunch of Too Much Joy songs and then got arrested and went to jail uh, and had a trial a couple months later. So basically... Charles Freeman, a record store owner, had been arrested for selling as nasty as they want to be. And we were watching the news when that happened. And that's what made us want to have the protest concert. We tried to turn it into this modern rock extravaganza. Our our concept was like all the modern rock bands, R.E.M. and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Too Much Joy and everybody else we could convince would go down and each do one two live crew song. And Sheriff Nick Navarro would have to, you know, hire like 10 school buses to cart us all off to jail. Yeah. And every single band we invited said, that's a great idea. We're busy that day. So we wound up doing it alone. Yeah. Did you call the Ramones? I don't recall ever talking to the Ramones about it. I don't think so. One other Tipper Gore related story where there was a law in Pennsylvania in response to Tipper Gore, where, you know, most records got this black and white sticker that said parental advisory, explicit lyrics, if there was like one or two curses on it. Mm -hmm. But Pennsylvania went farther and they had a sticker that was so big, it took up the entire back of a cassette. And it was just this checklist of depravity. It was like anal sex, rape, necrophilia, (laughs) uh, murder, suicide. It just went on and on and on. And we saw that and I thought it was so ridiculous. I tried to write a song that checked every single box on the Pennsylvania sticker. The song was called Take a Lot of Drugs. (laughs) Nice. I was just going to say my copy of Serial Killers does not have the parental advisory sticker is... I mean, I know there's a bunch of F-bombs in that on that album. I don't know a bunch, but there's some. Did that album avoid the sticker? So it's, it's interesting. The, the application of the stickers was frankly pretty racist. I know Ben Folds didn't get one on Rock in the Suburbs, but, you know, and he had a couple of F-bombs. Yep. Um, but if you were black, if you were a hip-hop act, you, all you had to do was curse once and you'd get the sticker. Hmm. So I think we had a little bit more leeway, frankly, because we were white and we were playing rock, not hip-hop. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, I guess... We got uh, one more band to talk about, and that band is Too Much Joy. All right. We formed literally in high school to play Clash songs at high school dances. In the suburb we grew up in, there were lots of rich kids with synthesizers just absolutely mauling Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd songs at high school dances. <laughs> and we're like, my friends and I would get drunk and go to the dances and go, this sucks. It'd be so much better if somebody played some punk. And then one day after saying this for like the 10th time, we looked at each other. We're like, they don't sound that hard to learn. Maybe we could do it. So we took guitar and bass lessons and drum lessons and figured out how to be a band uh, and started playing Clash songs. Did you get to uh, 
play for school dances? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My school had this tradition where the Wednesday before Thanksgiving was always a half day, and they had this big, like, talent show. <clears throat> so the whole day you just spent in the auditorium watching all your classmates, you know, do piano recitals and stuff like that. And there were always a couple of rock bands. We were the only one that actually played an original song, but all the classic rock kids, they hated our punk rock band. They thought we played too many eighth notes. So they sabotaged us. They basically unplugged all our amps before we went on without us knowing it. So, you know, we did this big who like windmilling on the first chord and no sound came out. It was super humiliating and embarrassing. But basically we'd forgotten that we were the only kids who liked punk rock in our high school. So nobody had any idea what's when we were playing Ramones and Clash songs. Nobody knew what the songs were. I was going to say, yeah. If, if they're going to boo us, they might as well boo us for writing our own songs. So we started writing our own and yeah. eventually self-released the first record that got picked up by an indie label in California. And then that record that we put out with them got picked up by Warner. And we made a couple records for Warner Brothers in the late 80s, early 90s. Nice. Yeah. And now we're getting to 1992. Too Much Joy has released their fourth album, Mutiny. And we're going to hear the second single from the album, which went to number 11 on the modern rock charts. It's called Donna Everywhere. So my wife's name is actually Donna. And the the lyric at least came about, we were on tour and it was really early in our relationship and we were on a long tour and I was just super missing her. And, you know, maybe you've experienced this phenomenon where there's somebody that you miss and you just keep seeing them. So like I'd look out the van window as, you know, we were tearing down the highway and I'd swear I saw Donna in another car. And then, you know, I'd get out, you know, we'd pull into a town and, you know, stop for lunch. And, you know, there's somebody who looked just like her sitting at a table across from us. And that just kept happening. And so I jotted down the phrase, I see Donna everywhere. I remember we wrote the song in the van while we were on tour and, you know, it was super catchy melody. The guys were, you know, they were just humming the melody that they'd come up with in these really nice, chunky chords. Um, They're like, Tim, you have any lyrics? And I said, yeah, I've been working on this thing. I see Donna everywhere, and it fits perfectly with this. Well, you know, we're a bunch of kids in our 20s, you know, super passive aggressive. We proceed to have like a three-month knockdown drag-out fight where they insist we cannot call the song Donna everywhere. We can't name it after my girlfriend. She's my wife now. She's my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. It's one of the stupidest arguments we ever had. One of the longer ones. The only one that was stupider and longer was whether or not we should do the Budweiser commercial. And I kept saying, no, Donna is the only combination. It has nothing to do with my girlfriend. It's the only combination of syllables that works there. And they go, (laughs) Rhonda. And I go, there's already a, a hit song called with Rhonda in the title. And they go, there's already hit songs with Donna in the title. So we just went, kept going back and forth like this. At the time, I always felt like I was getting overruled and outvoted and I never got my way. But in retrospect, I could be just as stubborn an asshole as the rest of the band members. And for whatever reason, I, I prevailed on that one against the odds, I must say. Although I guess you could have refused to sing the lyrics. <laughs> Well, then, then they would have sung them. I, I actually, I, I don't really sing on the chorus. It's the other guy singing on the oh, chorus. Oh, okay, okay. It's pretty similar on Crest Story, too. Whenever we get super poppy, usually the other guys are taking the lead on the choruses, and I'm just, you know, adding color on the verses uh, and harmonizing it on the choruses. 
And then lyrically, you know, after I had the phrase, I see Donna everywhere, I just, I've always been a fan of Raspberry Beret. And I was like, you know, I want a sexy song like Raspberry Beret about a free-spirited woman. Does this song follow real life? I know there's a lyric in there about losing her to your best friend or (laughs) maybe not best friend. Well, I will say two things. The first is that some of the incidents in the song have happened in my life. The second thing I will say is that if you ask Donna, she will always tell you, this one is not about her. Crush Story is about her. She's proud that Crush Story is about her. She doesn't want to be associated with this particular <laughs> song at all. Okay. So Too Much Joy put out another album after that, went on hiatus in 1997, and kind of returned and then unreturned back and forth for a little while. But um, sometime around a couple years ago, new singles started to appear. And this was through some sort of crowdfunding campaign, wasn't it? I mean, the thing is, we never broke up. We just stopped recording and touring, really. Jay and I, the guitar player, and I moved to California, and the rest of the band stayed in New York on the East Coast. So we just didn't get together all that often. But whenever we had a quorum of band members, uh, we'd go into the studio and like bang out a tune, either for Record Store Day compilations or you know just for our own amusement. We used to release them just on our own website. And then during the pandemic, Bandcamp started doing this First Fridays thing where you know they'd let bands keep hundred percent of the revenue instead of taking their, their usual cut. And I saw a lot of bands participating in it and I saw lots of people going nuts, you know, and just buying lots of stuff on first Fridays. It was the pandemic. Everybody was stuck at home. I had nothing to do. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, for the next, uh, first Friday, I'll just take all these, you know, like 15 years worth of random tracks that weren't really collected anywhere. And I'll just throw them up on Bandcamp and, you know, for the first Friday. So I did that. And, we were all sort of like shocked by the response. We made more money like in that one day than we had on Warner Brothers, basically. <laughs> wow. And so then Sandy, the original bass player uh, who had sort of returned to the fold, he'd left in 1994 and then he'd come back sometime in the aughts. He said, hey, what if we tried to have an actual new song ready for next First Friday? And he sent me a riff he'd been working on. I had some lyrics because I've always got lyrics. So we sort of put it together. We showed it to the rest of the band. They tweaked it a little bit. And we're like, yeah, let's record this. And, you know, we've got a month. We'll have this live by next first Friday. So we did it. We put it up the next first Friday. I think that was in June. And again, the response was like crazy, overwhelming. And we had so much fun. And, you know, we were all stuck at home. We're like, well, this sort of remote recording thing is working. Let's do a single a month. And by Christmas, we'll have a new album. The A-sides will all be brand new songs we write, and the B-sides will all be old songs from the 90s that you know never got officially recorded. And so we started doing that, and then the next thing we knew, we had 50 songs, most of them new. Wow. Then we created an Indiegogo campaign and said, hey, we think we're going to have a record. We're going to self-release it. If anybody's interested, you can pre-buy it now before it exists, and we'll take the money that comes in from that, and we'll use it for studio time and mixing and mastering. And that's what we did. So we put out our first record in you know 20 years, 25 years in 2021, and now there's another one coming out next month. Very cool. And what, what's the new album called? All These Fucking Feelings. All right. Did you get the parental advisory sticker? Well, (laughs) this one's on an actual label. And so I actually said to the label, I was like, hey, you know, we've got a couple of possible ideas for the title. We're really leaning toward this one, you know, unless you guys tell us it's going to fuck us. And they're like, no, nobody cares anymore. You know, we're going to be selling these in in mom and pop shops and indie stores. It's not like these are going in Walmart anyway. Yeah. So call it whatever the hell you want to. So that's what we did. Very cool. Well, I guess that's about it. Before we finally get going, I should announce the mystery song, Song of Mystery, whatever it's called. That song was Unsung by Helmet. Did you know it? Did you get that one? If anyone wants to contact me, 
They can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. If any listeners have not done so, it'd be really cool if you left a review or something to that effect on wherever you listen to podcasts. And if people want to learn more about Too Much Joy, uh, I know you got a website. Should we send them over there? Oh, yeah. TooMuchJoy.com. Or you can just look us up on Facebook. We're reasonably active there. Guitar player keeps trying to get us on TikTok, but, you know, we're too fucking old for that. <laughs> All right. Right on. Well, uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining me. This has been fun. Yeah, I had a blast. Instead of saying goodbye with our normal theme music, I'm going to send us out with the latest single from Too Much Joy. This song is called Normal Never Was, and it's from their upcoming album, All These Fucking Feelings. Enjoy. I don't find it believable.